Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And today I have the good pleasure to be joined by Dana Thomas, who is the founder of the Happy Teacher Revolution. She is joining us today from Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, and we're going to have a conversation on the topic of teacher wellness, uh, a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And I was fortunate enough to come across some of the work that Dana is doing through reading an online article that led me to the Happy Teacher Revolution. And I am so excited to learn more about that effort, uh, about Dana's heart for this work. Uh, and so to start things off, uh, Dana, can you give us a little bit of an introduction? Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Thank you to everyone who is listening. I'm I'm really grateful to share about something I'm so passionate about, which is supporting the health, happiness, and wellness of our educators. And while Happy Teacher Revolution has teacher in the name, we define teacher as anybody who is in a caregiver relationship intensive capacity with that of a child, with that of a student. And so uh, by teacher, we mean paraprofessionals, principals, secretaries, lunch ladies, bus drivers, future teachers, veteran teachers, all the above. So Happy Teacher Revolution was born in Baltimore, but we are a global movement with the mission to organize and conduct support groups for educators in the field of mental health and well-being to help increase teacher happiness, retention, and professional sustainability. We believe that educators deserve the time and space to feel, deal, and be real about the social emotional demands that they face on the job. Love that to feel, <laughs> deal, and be real. Yes. Uh, <laughs> sign me up for all that. Love that we're going to advocate that right from the top. Uh, and Dana, I know having had the opportunity to speak with you prior to the recording the pod today, uh, that this is a topic that comes really from your, some personal experience that you uh, started your recognition of this as an issue that turned into advocacy. Mm -hmm. And so could you give us a little bit of your history uh, just maybe even acknowledging this as a need for our educators broadly out there. Yeah. So I would say the story and journey of Happy Teacher Revolution began before I was a teacher when I was actually still a student. So when I was in high school and also in college, I suffered from crippling depression and anxiety and panic attacks. And at the time, I didn't know that it was so common that one in four Americans grapples with a mental illness. I didn't know that one in five college students has contemplated suicide. I didn't know that the onset of mental illness most frequently occurs between the ages of 17 and 24. And I fit right into that statistic. I spent a lot of time and energy and effort trying to hide my sadness, my darkness from my parents, from my friends, but the people that I couldn't hide it from were my teachers. They were the ones who recognized those subtle cues, those subtle changes in behavior as warning signs. They were the ones who had built relationships with me to be able to have that rapport to ask, Dana, are you okay? And to actually care enough to know that my response was that, no, I wasn't okay. And they were the first ones to ask and provided differentiation and accommodation for me when I was in crisis that didn't just help me make it to graduation, but they're the reason I'm alive and well today and, and had the opportunity to speak with you. And so I owe my life to them. I, I consider them my emotional first responders because they really were my first responders in every sense of the word. And I dedicate every keynote presentation conference I've ever given to my emotional first responders, to my teachers who saved my life. They're my heroes. 
And they're the reason I became a teacher myself. And when I first entered the classroom as Miss Thomas uh, in Baltimore City Public Schools, I recognized firsthand both the lack of preparedness as well as ongoing support for the emotional demands of the job. There were no praxis questions on my well-being, on my social emotional learning. There were no courses in graduate school at Johns Hopkins University at the time around supporting my own wellness. Uh, there was no coursework around vicarious trauma, caregiver burnout, toxic stress, moral distress. These weren't things that were named or even talked about. And so when I was teaching, uh, there was also this component of supporting individuals who've experienced trauma, children who've experienced trauma firsthand. That was, again, something else that wasn't on the praxis exam. And we know that trauma in a child's life can range from any number of things, whether it's moving neighborhoods or moving countries, losing a pet or losing a parent, experiencing a natural disaster, witnessing an act of gun violence or surviving a global pandemic are all incidents of trauma. And so when I first started teaching, I very much felt that part of my healing journey involved serving as an advocate for mental health awareness. You know, I wanted to talk about the thing that wasn't talked about. I wanted to reduce stigma around anxiety, around depression, because I thought the more that we talk about it, the, the less of a stigma, maybe there's someone who'd be encouraged to get help and to seek treatment. And so I was the national spokeswoman for NAMI Maryland, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, as well as the Music for Mental Health campaign. And so I was sharing articles on Facebook. I was going to awareness walks. I was like, give me the microphone. Let me tell you some statistics about the prevalence of this. Um, and as a result, so many of my colleagues, my friends, other teachers, people I worked with came out to me about things that they had struggled with that they had never shared before around the stress, anxiety, overwhelm as it relates to the job. And these were people who taught down the hallway from me or maybe sat next to me in grad school, or I would sit with at professional development lunches and, and they would share really personal things with me. And, and I was on the receiving end of this and, and very easily saw a pattern and noticed a common theme. And I thought, well, maybe it's just in Baltimore. Maybe teachers are just stressed in Baltimore. Maybe this is something that's just happening in my neighborhood. And one of the things that I, I really adore is data and research and evidence. And I love nerding out about data. And I was getting my master's at the time from Hopkins and data-driven education. So I'm like, show me the data. And and first, the most alarming thing was that there really wasn't any. Like there, there was a lot of a lot more research on student mental health, but not necessarily adult mental health or teacher mental health. When it came to mental health and well-being, there there were more so pieces of research and investment in like nurses and doctors and those types of caregivers, but not necessarily in educators. And so that was my first noticing was, wow, this seems like a relatively new field in terms of the studying and research of adult well-being and mental health and education. And the second thing I noticed was, wow, this is something that isn't unique to Baltimore alone. So according to research from the University of Missouri, an estimated 93% of teachers are stressed out. And this study was done before the pandemic. So I said, okay, if we could apply this to the number of teachers in the United States alone, there's 3.6 million teachers in the US. That means that potentially 3.3 million teachers are stressed out, which means that an estimated 80 million children could be sitting in the classroom of or on a Zoom call with a stressed out teacher. Well, why does that matter? How does that impact? Well, the next piece of research from University of British Columbia in Canada, uh, they did a study measuring the stress hormone that we call cortisol. And they had teachers and their students give saliva samples. And turns out this, the students in the study loved it. They thought it was just so fun spitting into these containers <laughs> for the study. 
And come to find out teachers with higher levels of cortisol had correspondingly students with higher levels of cortisol, which means to say that stress is contagious both ways with teachers and students. And the University of Arizona did a study that linked teacher depression to low student math scores. And there was another study uh, from Yale Child Study Center that showed that early childhood teachers who are stressed out, burnt out, low job satisfaction are more likely to suspend and refer students of color and boys more than girls at a rate of four times as much. So it's also an equity issue. So suddenly I'm realizing, oh my gosh, if we're not supporting our educators' mental health, well-being, social, emotional health, we're not adequately supporting our students' SEL, we're not adequately supporting our student academic achievement, and we're perpetuating the school to prison pipeline. And if that's not enough, it's simply bad business. It's a poor return on investment because we're spending $7.3 billion every single year on the constant recruitment and training of new teachers. Imagine if that revolving door was seen in other professions like doctors or lawyers or police officers, for example. So we're seeing more teachers leave than ever before, especially in the midst of the pandemic, more teachers retire early than ever before. And really what this all boils down to is, you know, there's this phrase that it takes a village to raise a child. And I'm wondering who's taking care of the village before there's no villagers left. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, that's how the journey started. And that's how Happy Teacher Revolution began. One thing I love, Dana, through that entire piece and folks that aren't able to see this because they're an audio only is that there's just a, a passion and a joy to your advocacy, right? Not because this is an issue, but because it is one that you can tell that your heart is committed to addressing. And uh, I'm grateful for that because the, the profession needs that type of advocacy because I, and, and maybe this gets to my question then that I'd like to explore next is that uh, we've had guests on who have suggested that it, there is just a fundamental issue with the job of an educator, that there is just really not a way out of it being kind of a high stress, high stakes experience without redesigning the learning experience. Mm-hmm. And there are others that say, well, there's a healthy way to navigate that environment and tend to focus more on that end of the spectrum. And I don't think that there's a maybe an answer per se, but I love kind of thinking about those two. And so how would you frame that, I guess? Uh, is, is this more of an issue with the rhythms of the job and or is it something that we can navigate if we're more intentional about our own well-being? Yeah. Easy question. It's, yeah. <laughs> Easy Sorry. Start off super simple with the question. <laughs> easy peasy. All right. So, so my answer would be it's both like, so, so with happy teacher revolution, I I like to give um, presentations and training and support around what's going to help you Monday morning. What is going to help you to like tomorrow. And because I think teachers definitely need actionable items and that it starts with the individual. It really does. It starts with the individual modeling boundary setting and saying no and scheduling and prioritizing what really matters. That's one of our 12 choices. Like that's, we adapted Vicki Davis's 12 choices to step back from burnout into a, a pillar of different tenants for teachers to affirm for themselves and have that autonomy around. That's one of the components of well being is, is autonomy. And so I think it is really important that folks feel motivated and autonomous when it comes to making these choices around their own well being is huge, but we cannot put all of the onus on the individual. So if we think about it as a pyramid, the self-care, the individual is the top of the pyramid. 
the bottom is systemic change, which really needs to happen at the systemic level. Then it's community care and then it's self-care. What's happened with this trend in self-care, it's like the pyramid's been flipped and we put the onus on the individual as if it's another thing to add to their heaping plate full of responsibility. That being said, like the change comes from the individual level who's who's modeling this, but there definitely needs to be systemic change, which is why I, my answer is both. So from the systemic level, as, as a founder and, and a leader of a global international organization that is reimagining, revolutionizing, so to speak, <laughs> the way we support students by supporting adults, it needs to come from a completely different lens of how we support professionals and how we develop professionals through this lens of well-being. So it can't be this extra thing that's like happens on the perimeter of the school day or on the weekends or when you have time off, go and do this thing. But rather, part of a contractual workday needs to include intentional well-being from, from the workplace lens. And so what that means is that programming like Happy Teacher Revolution or other well-being programming is part of professional development days or like the half-day release where teachers stay in the building and and those types of things, that it's not like this optional add-on, but rather is seen as part of what it means to be an educator, that in order to get the guided reading PD or the writing PD or the math PD or all of the other things, the foundation is well-being, again, not only for yourself, but community care. So part of social-emotional learning is social awareness, relationship skills, those types of things. And when we think about teachers getting along together and fostering the sense of community and belonging, it really is a very isolating profession. We're in our rooms, we close the door, we don't really have the chance to observe one another, even within our own building, let alone in different multiple buildings across a region, across a district. And there might be a back to school, getting along together, like camaraderie type of activity or intentional space, but it's not something that is carried out systemically throughout the school year and part of a contractual workday or professional learning. Like when we see well-being as part of professional learning, that's when I know we're making steps in the right direction for systemic change. Uh, I love that you share that as professional learning, which yeah. I think would take it a step further than some of the practices. And I mean, those that listen to the pod consistently have heard me joke before that uh, there's not enough jeans days, potlucks, and let me leave work two hours early to like make me right in terms of my like mental health wellness. And at the same time, I'm not sure that uh, encouraging me to take five deep breaths and do yoga before school starts each day either, if it's not necessarily in my wheelhouse or something that would speak to me or serve me to the purpose that it would be asked of me to do those types of things. Mm-hmm that there's an education is what I'm hearing you say. Is it accurate? I guess that the the learning piece of how to take care of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that like, it's so individualized that it's really creating the time and space to, as I said earlier, feel, deal and be real. So to feel into like, what are my needs? What do I actually need right now? Is it a deep breath? Or is it like some movement or is it a different component of well-being? Um, so that's the other thing is like, we can't force people to take care of themselves. That doesn't land well. You must self-care like that. That's really like does not align uh, to the mission of the movement. But it's also something that like isn't a one size fits all. So my definition of well-being and how to pour into my cup looks very different than other people. I play the saxophone. Like that's my self-care is rocking out on my sax. I also love gardening and I love to take care of my plants. I find that when I'm tending to my environment, that 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 feels very aligned in my own well-being. I hate to run. 
I absolutely hate running. And my dad's a, a cross country runner. He was an all American cross country runners. And some people running is their thing. It's not mine. And that's okay. Please don't make me do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. I think it, it comes to like arriving at those answers for yourself and actually devoting time and space. Like in happy teacher, we say to schedule and prioritize what really matters. So actually scheduling that time for yourself and noticing when you're doing the scheduling, like, is it uncomfortable to carve out time for yourself? Is it more uncomfortable to even commit to that time for yourself, let alone carve it out? Are you more likely to commit to a Zoom call or or meeting with someone else than a meeting with yourself, even for 15 minutes? Or is that something that gets put off for the sake of serving and supporting others? So it's really flipping uh, folks' consideration of showing up as a caregiver by taking care of yourself first, which which isn't something that is practiced in this profession. And a lot of times the folks who are drawn to this work are so used to being self-sacrificing and, and showing up for so many people in their lives. And so I think that has been my biggest surprise in this movement has been like, oh, wow, we're really dismantling here a lot of like assumptions and, and also dismantling the way the education system was built, which is that education, the system of education was not built with the well-being of the adults in mind. Like that's not something that has necessarily been considered. And so when we say yes to everything, when we wear our sick days like a badge of honor and come to work, even when we're not feeling well, these are all things that are perpetuating this narrative. So it does come from, from an individual like claiming wellness as their own so that they can show up in a more sustainable way for those they serve. Wow. Two things I would piggyback off of that with. And one uh, that I heard in the first part of your response there, and it resonates with me on a personal level because I enjoy working out, but there are days where sleeping in is a better service to me than working out and being able to have the discernment between which of those you need at that time, even though both might be a wellness piece <laughs> on a different day, uh, is its own nuanced piece that, like you said, is really difficult from some sort of top-down leadership to be able to say, no, this is what you need right now. Uh, it's It's got to be something that you own on the individual level. And at the same time, maybe to juxtapose that, it sounds like what you're sharing as well is that school leadership is important for creating the space within which especially educators can give themselves permission to put themselves first situationally as needed to make sure that they're right for the people they serve. Exactly. And what you share really touches on what the research tells us is that when school leadership is invested in well-being, it makes a huge difference for the staff that they lead. So just as as an employee, like recognizing, wow, my boss really does care about well-being and wow, they they really buy into this. That makes a huge difference. And, and also I think what is often unspoken is the need for leaders themselves. It can be very isolating being a principal, being an administrator, um, being at the district level. And so one of the things that we've realized in Happy Teacher Evolution is that in our most successful sites, leadership has gone through the same training as the staff and they hold the same circles and support groups with other leaders. And oftentimes there, it's definitely a space that folks absolutely crave to have the opportunity to connect, to listen, to feel heard. And the other thing about Happy Teacher Revolution I want to make sure to amplify is that it's also a space where individuals are invited to share and to speak and to amplify the voices of those who are often silenced or not even invited to be a part of the space either. So folks in different like marginalized uh, positions. And so we find it to be incredibly valuable for folks to connect with one another and to listen and to share 
amongst each other in a way that is really, I, I guess I would say is like equalizing that, that there isn't any hierarchy of participants within the space and it humanizes each other so that, you know, when you're in the hallway and, and somebody looks like they might be struggling, you can reach out and connect instead of just keep it moving, keep it going and passing judgment, because maybe there's something that they shared in circle that they're grappling with that you just see your colleagues, your, your comrades with more humanity. Gosh, and to do that, uh, let me make sure I got this right to feel deal and be real. (laughs) I love that. So I'm just gonna bring it up again. There's a certain level of self-awareness and vulnerability that I would think the leadership would have to take on and uh, and and then model that uh, yeah. and make that something that and then, and then the listening kicks in, right? <laughs> right? Because not only is it about putting yourself out there, but then by modeling that, then it makes gives everyone else permission. But as that sharing starts to happen, right, there has to be a place where that's heard and recognized and responded to, and that feels like a different part of it as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, though, is that in the in the happy teacher meetings and the spaces, it's not an advice giving space. People aren't saying you should. Have you done this? Why didn't you do this or anything like that? It's very much I messages and I statements. So, you know, one of the things that's part of our happy teacher evolution process is before the meetings even held um, to take attendance. And the, our, our facilitators are called revolutionary. So, our revolutionaries who lead the spaces, they not only take attendance, but they have everybody complete a waiver that verifies that this is not therapy. It's not meant to substitute as therapy, that the advice from the revolutionaries is not meant to be therapeutic uh, or healing necessarily in any capacity. And that uh, the opinions expressed are from the person who shared them and not representative of the revolutionary or facilitator themselves. And so I think what's really important is that not only are folks arriving at these solutions themselves, but, but like you said, they're witnessing their leadership be vulnerable. Now, leadership isn't necessarily in every single happy teacher revolution meeting. Um, I think back to one of our very first national sites that was in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was at a trauma-informed school. So this was a school that was piloting trauma-informed practices in this, in the systemic uh, type of way throughout the school community. And, and the principal was really vulnerable with me and sharing that, look, he goes, my first year as the principal here, I was completely 100% trauma-informed focus on students and students alone. He said, I completely neglected what trauma-informed looks like for the staff that's supporting our students and specifically vicarious trauma. So he said, I want to, I want to try this happy teacher thing. And so we circled up and he was in that first meeting. And because he was the first one to share and to really go there and be vulnerable and and to show the humanity of the profession of leadership. I think that's the thing with teachers and leaders is that it's like this us versus them or like seeing them as the other when really we're all in this together. We're all working together. And so when he was able to model that vulnerability for his staff, they really bought in and he didn't attend the meetings after that, you know, he offered the time and space for educators to be a part of the happy teacher meetings, but he ended up having happy teacher, happy principal meetings with some other leaders who ended up really craving that, uh, you know, more than some of the teachers did. And so I think it is really important that leadership models some of these tenets of social emotional learning, but also trust to provide the space uh, without them necessarily being in the, in the room. 
Wow. And in listening to that, it might be beneficial for us to segue a little bit to what is the happy teacher revolution? Because I'm I'm hearing in your example there, uh, the role that your organization can play in support of, whether it be school leaders or the school culture, and as a result in the impact that has on learners and learning. And so maybe for those that aren't familiar, uh, can you give us a little bit more of the an explanation of who the organization is and kind of the, uh, you know, you shared the vision earlier, but maybe reiterating that. Yeah. So we train revolutionaries or facilitators to launch and lead their own happy teacher revolution meetings within their communities or online in a digital space. And so, you know, unfortunately when the pandemic happened in 2020, all of the school districts or or conferences got canceled, all the in-person speaking engagements and What was really fascinating was teachers were actually paying out of pocket to receive our training and to get credentialed as revolutionaries to launch these spaces because they they craved it more than ever. So we offer online training for individuals to become certified revolutionaries to launch and lead happy teacher meetings in their communities. The training's online, asynchronous. Um, They get to have a check-in call with myself about halfway through. And they're actually launching meetings halfway through the curriculum so that we can be there as an organization to support or troubleshoot if anything comes up. But what has been really powerful has been our pilot site. So that's rather than just a one-off individual who's learning how to lead meetings, rather an entire site, be it a school or a district or a um, collection of individuals, pilots Happy Teacher Revolution as a pilot site, meaning that It's more than just one person. It's an entire cohort of revolutionaries. And that way we can study the data, research, evidence in a way that is statistically significant with those larger numbers and and evaluate impact. So the main impact, well, this this was really exciting, the data piece. So before the pandemic, our data that we were studying was burnout. We were using the Maslock burnout inventory and we wanted to prove that, yes, teachers are burnt out and here are all the ways that they're burnt out. Then COVID happened and there was that statistic I mentioned earlier, 93% of teachers are stressed out and COVID happened. I thought, okay, instead of focusing on the 93%, what if we focused on the 7%? What are they doing? Can we replicate it? Can we study it? Can we make it a little less mysterious? And so in 2020, we shifted our lens to then study well-being instead of measuring burnout. So now In our pilot site specifically, we measure a pre and post implementation of a multi-tiered system of support, a tier two intervention that is Happy Teacher Revolution to support educators' well-being. And we use the RIF scale of well-being, R-Y-F-F. So we're measuring six principles of well-being. I mentioned autonomy earlier. There's environmental mastery, personal growth, positive relationships with others, purpose in life and self-acceptance. And so in our pilot sites, what has been really exciting is that we have, again, the statistical significant evidence to say that happy teacher revolution in our pilot sites has helped increase a sense of belonging, even in the midst of the most isolating time of history of the pandemic, that we have 93% of respondents reporting that there's a colleague uh, they can count on no matter what, and this reduced sense of isolation, and that in our happy teacher sites, are actually in the top tier of well-being compared to other sites that didn't launch the program. Uh, we also have data from some of our sites that shows the impact of just one meeting having an impact on staff. I'm, I'm, I'm referencing one of our sites in Colorado 
did a really quick pre and post survey before a meeting about these emotional zones of regulation. And we had a reduction in folks in the red zone, increase in the green zone. And so it's just been really exciting to see the data that's come out from sites that are investing in the well-being of adults and what that has actually looked like. So it's been really exciting because the pilot sites is where there's really where I see there's going to be a huge ripple effect of impact when there's, you know, 20, 30 plus more revolutionaries who are trained in a, a location that we can study and really dive into those metrics. Uh, and bring about that culture shift. Uh, exactly. And embed yes. those practices. Because uh, the culture shift, again, it it starts with the leadership. Like in our most successful pilot sites, the superintendent is using the language of happy teacher in the staff newsletters every month and in the like in the communication. And so it becomes normalize that this is just something that we do here is that we we invest in well-being and then what ends up happening is not only are they keeping great teachers in their community but future teachers or new teachers are saying hey I want to work at a place that values my well-being and there's a teacher shortage and there's fewer teachers graduating from schools of education than ever before so it's a really great recruitment tool to keep and retain fabulous educators because unfortunately they're leaving in droves you know, and, and other industries are saying, we'll hire you. We love teachers. You work hard. You're passionate about what you're doing. You know what I mean? And so really in happy teacher revolution, the incentive here is to keep great teachers in the classroom and, and pouring back into themselves and into their communities, into each other. Well, in, and I always joke on the pod that 30 minutes goes pretty quick, but I I do want to draw a couple more. (laughs) Time flies. (laughs) It does. I do want to draw maybe two more pieces out here though, before we bring things to a close. And the first one would be to say, if we revisit that list of six, which uh, if you'd reiterate those, that would be incredible. And I would be curious to maybe if you're all right with pressing into one of those a little bit more to flesh that out, I guess, in terms of what that looks like as you support maybe one of those six pieces of the riff as you were talking about. Yeah, riff. Carol Riff. Yeah. R-Y-F-F. So the six were autonomy. I'm looking at my wall because I have this like crazy wall behind my computer that looks like a like crime scene investigation with like post-its <laughs> and quotes and like red yarn like attaching pinned. like yep <laughs> so I have a part half of my entire wall is dedicated to this risk scale of well-being where I have different you know sound bites um so autonomy environmental mastery personal growth positive relationships with others purpose in life and self-acceptance and I, autonomy really leaps out to me because I think that uh, so many decisions are made on behalf of teachers, on behalf of, you know, people think they're an expert in teaching just because they were a student once. <laughs> and a lot of people in positions of power, uh, you know, calling the shots. And so I think that with autonomy, it can seem it can seem like it's impossible to be autonomous with so many decisions that are made on your behalf and the curriculum and you gotta make sure you, you know, the the legal paperwork our, for our special educators and folks who have to deal with all types of demands that I think autonomy is the one I'd like to focus on because I think when there is an individual agency to bring your authentic self to the classroom, that can lead to systemic change. So what I mean by that is uh, I think that when you bring something that you're good at, you're passionate about, and you share that with your students, not only are your students getting to witness an adult who is happy and well (laughs) instead of miserable, (laughs) but they also get to see that passion. There's a video of um, Adele 
and she is performing and she's asked, you know, who is someone that inspired you to keep doing what you love and to pursue your passion and doing what you enjoy. And she references her middle school English teacher. And it's not just, and she didn't, didn't reference like the worksheet she filled out or like the assignments that were given, but she instead shares that her teacher was so inspiring to her because her teacher was also a dancer outside of school. And her teacher wore like fun, sparkly gold outfits to work. It was just so authentically herself. And then out from the audience comes this teacher and Adele starts crying. It's an amazing clip. I highly recommend it. But I think what's really cool is this level of authenticity from educators and being able to show that my first year teaching, I, I had mentioned that I play the saxophone and I still play actively. I still play gigs, but my first year teaching, I didn't take my instrument out of the case. It, it collected dust. And I remember going over my, after my first year with my mentor and, and sharing, you know, how much music impacts my life. And they were like, well, why don't you show and share that with your students? And so first day of school, the next year, I brought my saxophone into class. It was part of day one and I incorporated music. We didn't, unfortunately didn't have a music teacher because of budget cuts in, in the school. And I was a music major and like, I, it was something I really cared about. So I integrated music into our procedures, into our learning, into how we understood patterns and repetition and rhyming. And as a result, not only was I more joyful because there was music in, in the class every single day, but my students ended up learning better and making new connections. They could all snap on two and four. They knew what a saxophone was, you know, and for kindergartners, that was pretty impressive. So, <laughs> you know, I think the autonomy piece of bringing your individual self and knowing that you have agency is so huge. Dana, that reminds me actually of a school that I had the good fortune to learn more about at one point in time who had had the vision for elementary uh, to have like a half day genius hour on Fridays. And they began by having students select what they were interested in. And then the teachers scurried to do the best they could to support 25 learners in 25 different interests. And that was successful to some degree. But what they eventually found was when they flipped it, when they asked their staff to pick the one thing that they were most passionate about. So in your case, maybe it would have been the saxophone and to create a lesson that anyone K through six that was interested in what you were interested in or just wanted was curious, right? Maybe didn't even have any background. Then they could go for Genius Hour to learn more about that um, uh. for a season and then switch. And they found that that was so much more powerful, not only in inspiring learners to connect with things that they maybe didn't realize they were interested in previously, but also um, as much for the staffs, again, maybe wellness or just the building culture for them to be seen for these this skill set uh, that they have that goes above and beyond what they bring to their classroom each and every day as the instructor um, or leader of the learning. Mm -hmm. And so that reminds me of that school and that story. And I've seen that play out in a significant way uh, in one instance, but it speaks to that. Yeah. And I also have the concept of as adults, like we're still learning as teachers, we are always still learning and learning a new skill I found is so helpful for me as a teacher, because when I'm learning a new skill, I'm failing all the time. I'm a beginner. So I'm like, it's clunky and it's goofy and, and it helps me remember, oh, when my students are learning something new, or even when other teachers are learning something new, like taking care of themselves, that yes, it's going to be imperfect and clunky and we're going to goof it up a number of times, but it's such a beautiful reminder of what it means to be a forever learner. 
Uh, and Dana, I'll pay you one further and say too, that's oftentimes where innovation lies, right? When you take something from one context and you apply it in a place or make connections uh, where it doesn't seem like that should exist. And uh, yeah, I totally agree that that's, there's just so much benefit to be played through those opportunities. And so, uh, as I said a moment ago, all right, two notes left. I guess we just did the previous one. Thank you for exploring autonomy with us a little bit more. And so we'll kind of wrap things up by saying, if you had sort of a, a parting message here or a call to action, if you could leave us with something to think about. Mm. So one of my favorite educators is Dr. Chris Emden, uh, who teaches at Columbia University in New York and the founder of the hip hop education movement. And he shares that one of my favorite quotes is that basic human needs extend to those who teach just as much as they extend to those who are to be taught. That an educator who feels devalued or unappreciated is not going to bring their fullest selves to the work. And so my parting message is to consider all of the ways we serve and support students and the research around supporting students through Maslow's hierarchy of needs or Castle's social emotional learning structure that all of those apply to our adults too. That when students are too hungry, too tired, too thirsty, too hot, too cold, or they don't feel safe, they're not gonna reach those higher levels of self-actualization and the same applies to our adults. Um, that our adults' basic human needs need to be met so that they can continue serving and supporting students each and every day. That's a terrific message. And I'm really grateful for your time today and sharing out through this avenue. Uh, if people are interested in continuing to learn from the Happy Teacher Revolution or to maybe sign up to become a revolutionary or to start an initiative at their school, uh, where can they find you and, and reach out? Yeah. So check out our website, www.happyteacherrevolution.com. We have a bunch of free resources available as well in our starter pack to get you started. And we also have our online training available uh, for folks to join at happyteacherrevolution.com. We have yet to launch a pilot site in Nebraska. So I am hoping it's a state I haven't been to either. I actually drove around the country a couple months ago and visited Happy Teach Revolution sites all around the U.S. I drove from Baltimore uh, to Washington State, down Pacific Coast Highway and back. And I actually just got back last week from Canada. I was presenting at the Pan-Canadian Gathering for Well at Work initiative of uh, the Canadian provinces from all across Canada, because as it turns out, there's a pandemic of burnout and stress for teachers in Canada as well. But we've launched Happy Teach Revolution all across the U.S., Canada. We have sites in Africa and Dakar and Senegal and Nigeria. Uh, we're in Brazil, uh, but we need to be in Nebraska. So I'm hoping there's someone listening who wants to start the revolution uh, or folks outside of Nebraska too. I think the more the more individuals who are are cultivating their own well-being, raising awareness around the need for adult well-being, uh, that it really has a profound impact on on the students that we teach. So I hope to hear from you in my email. Hello at happyteacherrevolution.com, uh, or you can follow us on social media at Happy Teacher Revolution. Dana, thank you so much. And yeah, to our Nebraska listeners in particular, let's, let's get this thing started. Uh, <laughs> and I, uh, I gotta say, I through this avenue, I'm just always continually inspired by the work that individuals are doing in a myriad of capacities, um, both in our state, across the U.S. and around the world to make a difference in the lives of educators and 
and ultimately kids. Uh, and so thank you so much for what you're doing in this space and for your leadership and for taking a little time to share that with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Andrew. I really appreciate it. It's a dream come true to get to wake up and to serve as a full-time advocate for teachers, not only the teachers who saved my life, but the teachers who helped keep me going when I was a teacher too. And so uh, it's a blessing, a privilege, and an honor to be able to share how much I love and care about educators and, and how important this is to me. So thank you for providing this platform and thank you to everybody who's listening and tuning in. Uh, you're a part of the movement. You know, this is, this is all part of it. And not everybody is ready and willing to invest in well-being. It's a scary and different type of thing. And so I just want to say thank you for, again, amplifying this space and, and for having me. I'm honored to be here. 